from the team at CTS, this is the Train Right Podcast, our show for endurance athletes who want to learn how to train more effectively and improve their performance. I'm Coach Adam Pulford, your host for the cycling edition of the show, where it's my job to interview top coaches, scientists, experts, and athletes in the world of cycling to bring you actionable training tips that you can apply to your own training. Make sure to also listen in on our running edition of the show with my co-host, Hillary Allen, which alternates weekly with the cycling episodes. Now, let's dive into the show and learn how you can train right. This episode of the Train Right Podcast is brought to you by Stages Cycling, the industry leader in accurate, reliable, and proven power meters and training devices. Stages Cycling offers the widest range of power meter makes and models to fit any bike, any drivetrain, and any rider. They're all manufactured in their Boulder, Colorado facility, and they've expanded their offerings to include the Stages Dash line of innovative and intuitive GPS cycling computers, covering a full range of training and workout-specific features to make your workouts go as smooth as possible. And now Stages is applying its decade of indoor cycling studio expertise with the new Stages Bike Smart Trainer. Check it all out at www.stagescycling.com. This episode of the Trainwright Podcast is brought to you by the CTS Trainwright Membership. The Trainwright Membership helps you get the most out of your limited training time so that you can improve your performance and achieve your athletic goals. With the membership, you get access to science-based training plans, an 800-plus workout library, and an app to track your progress, along with advice from professional coaches via an online private form. Go to trainwright.com backslash membership to learn where to start and use code TRAINRIGHT for a free 14-day trial. Again, that's code TRAINRIGHT in all capital letters for a free 14-day trial. Welcome back, train riders. Just a quick intro here to remind you that you're about to listen to part two of single day versus multi-day methods with Russell Finsterwald. Finsty, as many of us call him in the mountain bike world, is a well-decorated multi-time U.S. national champ across multiple disciplines in the sport. And with his years of racing and working with CTS coach Jim Lehman, they have a well-tuned process that I wanted to share with you all. So put your headphones on, settle into your intervals, long ride, hike, or wherever you're at, and enjoy part two with Finsty. All right, so back to, uh, so back to like the multi-day races, you talked about Breck Epic, you're, we're, we're basically saying anything that's beyond one day. Um, but what are you and layman considering when prepping for stage races in the multi-day approach? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to the overall load and demands of the event. Um, something like Breck Epic, that's five hard days in the saddle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll typically train by doing a lot of hard days in the saddle. Um, that way, when you get to the race, you're confident that you can go hard for five days. You know how your body responds, say, after three hard days. Maybe maybe you're only able to push three hard days, and that fourth day, you need to like back it off a little bit, and then you can go all out the last day. Um, so just kind of understanding, a lot of it comes down to really understanding your body and how it works in different um, load environments. Um, but yeah, like Breck Epic, I like I really enjoy doing long endurance rides. Um, so we'll, we just factor in a lot of long, hard endurance rides. Um, those are good opportunities for me to 
get to explore new trails and ride new places. So, um, I love that training block. <laughs> yeah, that's, it, I mean, it certainly is, um, the, the Finsty go-to, uh, I was going to say your, your training partners back in Colorado Springs too. They're, they're pretty, pretty sturdy to, to, to train with as well. You get, um, the, the wolf pack, but also there's quite a few people of, uh, that can push some Watts around there too. Right. Yeah, definitely. I feel lucky to, um, live where I live both in the summer and in the winter. Um, in the winter here in Tucson, we have the shootout group ride that goes every weekend and, um, you never know what kind of pros are going to show up. It's some of the hardest days on the bike is just sometimes riding the draft of the shootout. <laughs> um, For sure. and then, yeah, back home in Colorado, we, there's a lot of people who will, come in through town we have a really strong group ride as you know on the weekends um mm-hmm. so i like implementing group rides into the training as much as possible because you just um when you're either trying to put someone in the pain cave or um just dig that little extra bit group rides are a great place to um just push yourself to different levels that you can't do riding by yourself um both from a physical and mental standpoint i think yeah, absolutely. And then when you're, when you mentioned about like, say five hard days in a row, um, when we're talking about uh, training, it, typically we'll refer to that as like a block training, right? It's a five day block. And after that comes probably some, you know, focused recovery, two, three days right. easy before you start the next block. And so when you enter in training partners or group rides into that, I think it, it allows you to, go beyond what you probably think as well as you are continually exploring and should explore like how your body is feeling. Normally it's like, if you get next to somebody struggling, you know, like pushing each other up the hill, I mean, you, you normally find something that wouldn't be there if you're riding solo. Correct me if I'm wrong. Totally. Yeah, no, I, um, hundred percent agree with that. Um, motor pacing is another tool that Jim Mm -hmm. and I use and that for the same reason, you're, your only focus while you're doing that effort is to hold on to the wheel and not get dropped by the motor. Um, so yeah, that's a good way that Jim gets out and tortures me. <laughs> um, I love motor pacing as well for that same reason, just cause yeah. you can kind of tune yourself out and not focus on riding a certain power or, um, getting in a solid hour at a high, um, intensity. You just focus on holding that wheel and whoever's driving the moto, they normally, sort of know your goal for that workout and they can kind of mm-hmm. just twist the throttle and inflict the pain on you. So when you're talking about like, if we go back to some of the same say concepts for the single day approach, we're talking about performance, fitness, recovery, let's start with performance. If you're looking for a key performance marker in a certain workout like that, uh, it's, is it for you and Jim, is it less focused on the, that power output and it's more about the feel and are you holding wheels and are you holding up or what what are you guys looking for there? I think a lot of what we look for is like bouncing back and being able to do, um, workouts the next day. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of times I'll do one of the kind of classic workouts we do is a five by 12 minute over under workout. Mm -hmm. And he'll Mm -hmm. typically give me that two days in a row. Um, so a lot of the things we look at is how did I do the second day? Did my power drop or um was it the same or did it get a little better and that kind of helps indicate on how i'm responding to multiple days of load um when i'm riding really good going into a stage race i actually am able to do more on the second day um so for me i've kind of found that's a good indicator is when i'm able to actually produce more power in these intervals the second day after um getting the same workout in the day before 
Yeah. And how that works for listeners, like why four by 12 and, and how could you push more power on the second day? Well, it comes back to some of that, that fitness and form. And you also mentioned TSB. There, there's some things that you can look at in terms of bringing an athlete in fresh to a race or in, in this situation, like a training block. And if Russell comes in fresh, maybe even a little stale because Jim wants him to do a five day block and it's about the five day. It's not just about the one day. He's probably starting with four by 12, which is around 48 or 50 minutes at threshold, which should be a physiological like maximum for Russell. And he might feel like a little blocked up on day one or like maybe hitting the ranges, but not in, but with an elite athlete come in on day two with good recovery habits, kind of, he opens up on that first day and then he's going to perform better on the second day. And he can, and Jim's still, you know, trying to max out that threshold on the given day. Cause he, Russell should be able to do between 45 and 60 minutes of threshold on that second day. So that's, that's the rationale that I think Jim is bringing into that. Meanwhile, whether Russell hits, you know, exceeds on day two or doesn't, I would, from my standpoint, I'm just going to observe the athlete and I probably won't change anything anyway. I want to see how he responds over time. And is that something that you would agree with in that process, Russell? Definitely. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I just, I just wanted to uh, describe, um, why you're probably doing like a four by 12 and anybody can, if properly set training ranges, yeah, they should do four by 12. That's good. Maybe the next day, three yeah. by 12, if, you, if you're not a professional athlete, because you might be a little fatigued, but anyway. Just wanna yeah, throw Jim, Jim does that with me too. Like normally the first day will be um, five by 12. And especially the deeper we get into the block where you're like, mm-hmm. uh, if you're on your third set of five day pushes, um, normally he'll kind of ease up on me. And maybe the second day I get to do four <laughs> instead of five or <laughs> right. something like that. So, yeah, and that's also you got, you're like, carrying fatigue. Yeah. Right. And it's also one of those mental things. Like if you really struggled on doing all five of them the day before you, you, you just say, Oh, I only have four tomorrow. That'll be quite a bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a lot of it I think is also just these little mental games, um, that you're able to just squeeze more out of your workouts and, um, get through training blocks by doing little things like that. Yep. Yep. Um, before on the single day stuff, we were talking about a, a fitness or perhaps a feel for you to optimally, uh, come into a single day event. Is that different for a multi-day? I mean, are you, are you looking at, are you looking at this time an algorithm fitness measurement or are you still kind of going by feel? Um, I'd say still going by feel for the most part. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I just like going by feel (laughs) on a lot of things. So yeah, just, um, focusing on, I think a lot of it is, it just comes down to recovery at the end of the day and focusing on, making sure you're staying fueled and feeling well the next day. Like if your body aches or something, that's a good sign that you're not recovering well. And Mm -hmm. um, if you get on the bike and you feel like you're struggling, maybe that's a good indicator that maybe you need to take a chill day and not push through it. Um, Mm -hmm. So if I like really crack on a workout, go home and I feel like the next day I still feel like I haven't recovered. That's normally when I'll call Jim and say, Hey, I think we may have overdone it. I'm, I'm cracked. And then, take, take a day off and get back at it the next day. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there are some sort of devices or something that I could get a value by, um, seeing that with numbers and science. Um, but I like mm-hmm. to just go by feel. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I mean, I'll shoot everybody straight here. It's like, you know, there's, there's plenty of devices and, and science out there on, on the market and, and I'm not, um, 
I will always advocate for science and data. However, when it comes to racing and performance, you know, if you crack, say, in a race and you don't have all those instruments, you know, handy with you, um, a lot of it's still between the, the ears and making sure that you get sleep because if you crack, that means you're tired. So right. optimize, control what you can control. Like Russell said, get your sleep, get the nutrition, get the hydration, focus on recovery, get your sleep, and then come back and fight again the next day because that's that's racing, man. Yeah, totally. And with that yeah. said, like I, I do tune into numbers on certain things like a power out power is the one thing right. I'm super into. Yeah. And I think that goes for most athletes. So I think there's always a need and a call for data in certain aspects. Um, well, I'm, I'm just a big fan of the keep it simple, keep it stupid principle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and, and, you know, Jim also is a dear friend. I've known him for, I don't know, 15 plus years as well. Um, and so I, I know kind of <laughs> the background is I know a little bit of his a little bit of his process of what's going through here, which is why it's a unique interview to be able to uh, talk with Russell um, in that way. And it's also a good example of how the coach athlete relationship, um, they can keep it simple because Jim has more of a complex approach, but it still allows Russell to kind of be himself and keep it simple to focus on the race, the the, kind of the art of racing, so to speak. And that's, that's what I want listeners to feel and understand about this, uh, this interview here. Um, and so kind of, but (laughs) so back to the numbers, Russell, um, (laughs) my last question when it comes to quantifying a fitness or a load or something that you're looking at, um, I know you're into power and all that kind of stuff, but is there an overall volume that you'd be focused on or hang your hat on that you'd want to be doing say a week before two weeks before a month before something like Breck Epic that is, I mean, it's not super, super long, but it's like pretty solid duration every day for a week. So is there a volume aspect that you're looking at? Um, Like in terms of hours or TSS? Just like time in the saddle. Yeah. um, Again, it kind of depends on like what my schedule looks like going into it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. um, one year I did Breck Epic, I was doing like a World Cup like two world cups and then a pro CT and I mm-hmm. flew to prec epic the night after pro CT and started it the next day. Mm-hmm. So obviously like that year didn't get the same prep. I would like <laughs> if I was focused on Breck epic as a peak race that year is more like I'd never done a stage race was going there for the experience. Yep. Um, so it really depends on what I have going into the schedule. Um, but it, ideally if I had four weeks with no training going into Breck epic, um, I would like to probably do two 25 hour weeks or so. Um, yep. I think that would be a good sweet spot for um, getting a similar, because obviously Breck Epic, I think our race time is under 20 hours total. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd want to do a little more just to get that same load. Because in 25 hours, I would probably do a similar TSS as what I would do in Breck Epic. So if That's I do it. two weeks of that pretty hard, I feel like I would go into Breck pretty well prepared for that race. Yeah. And that's, and that's the takeaway right there is even if you're not into fancy algorithms, just like what Russell sussed out there was like, okay, if I'm going to be racing X amount of time, I know I need to probably do a little bit over that in order to get the the total stress in the system before I race it. And so, yeah, if, and Russell races a lot throughout the year. So if he's got a clean slate, no racing for four weeks leading into a stage race, that's, that's, that's awesome. That's a wonderful way to do it. Yeah. Um, so nutrition, hydration, um, during stage racing, I mean, is this all the same as it was like on single day or how does it different throughout the race or throughout the race itself? 
Yeah, I think my hydration and nutrition strategy in the race pretty much stays the same. Um, I think like something like Breck Epic, we're not, or even like Pikes Peak Apex, those stages are a little shorter. Um, it's kind of like a mix of, it's kind of this middle ground where it's not a ultra endurance event, but it's still long days in the saddle. Um, and just knowing that I'm doing three days of racing, I'll, I'll try to implement some real food um, into my racing in those races. Um, I just think real food sits and is digested and gives you a little more energy in a different way than um, stuff like blocks. Um, so yeah, I think like I'll in Breck Epic, for example, I'd always bring one cliff bar and try to eat that throughout the race. And it's actually like pretty hard for me to eat a whole cliff bar. I would, it's just something I would constantly like nibble on throughout the race. Um, I wouldn't eat the whole bar in one go. Um, anytime there'd be like a lull in the pace where I'm not absolutely dying, just grab it out of my pocket, take a bite and put it back in. So yeah. Um, yeah, I don't put it in a wrap or anything. Just take the cliff bar out, throw it in your pocket, and then it's easy to get to anytime you need it. So a few I extra, think that works pretty uh, electrolytes well. on there too, that way, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it's <laughs> yep, a little extra salt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So if like the hydration nutrition on the bike is roughly the same, what is your recovery and say hydration nutrition off the bike? Does that change in terms of either quantity or focus or priority during a, a staged event? Yeah, I think it becomes a lot more of a priority than a single day event for sure. Um, and sort of like what I jumped into a little bit earlier is that mm-hmm. basically the next day starts as soon as you finish. Um, if possible, I think it's important to have a meal waiting for you when you finish as opposed to just saying I'll, on a single day event, you can be like, if I get it in the next hour, great. But on a multi-day event, you need it right away um, within the first 30 minutes, I'd say. Um, mm-hmm. Still have that recovery mix. Still have electrolytes if it was hot or you sweat quite a bit. Um, but get that real food in right away. And it can be like something small, even if it's just like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a banana or something. It doesn't need to be like a full course pasta dish or something like that. Just some real food that gives you calories that'll start letting your body replenish and get ready for the next day. Um, And I think the recovery continues as soon as you get off the bike. Um, That can be foam rolling, doing some recovery boots. If you have the opportunity for massage, get a massage. Um, Implementing things like that into your recovery after the stage will just make you feel so much better when you line up the next day. And especially the deeper you get into the race. Yeah, that's super important there, especially with that whole food um, recovery aspect. And some of the races, some of the races do it for you, meaning as soon as you cross the line, um, like for instance, Cape Epic, the year that I've done that, they have a whole like finishing shoot and they push you toward this um, like lunch station with already like pre uh, packed bags of food that you just grab and then you eat as you sit and hang out in the grass and people are finishing and all this kind of stuff. And then, and then we go back to our place of accommodation and then we have more food there and all this kind of stuff. So, um, when it's taken care of you, t- taken care of for you like that, it's really easy. Breakup big does something similar at the finish line. If it doesn't, if the race doesn't provide it, Russell, do you plan ahead or like, how do you get that food in post post race quickly? Yeah, that's something that'll go on the notes checklist the night before is have your pre-race meal made. Um, And if like we're lucky enough that most of the time we'll have a team van or something at the finish where I can just throw something in the cooler. 
Um, but if not, I'll just make it, have it ready for me. So as soon as I get in the hotel, um, it's ready for me. Because if you truly raced as hard as you can out there, you're not going to get back to the hotel and be motivated to make food. So if you can do it the night before, have it all ready to go, and all you have to do is sit in the couch and eat your sandwich, chances are you're going to do it. <laughs> yep. But yep. yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, just... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. And what, what I was going to say is like anyone who's done stage races knows how much of a challenge it becomes to eat as the event goes on. Um, there's a certain point where you, I wouldn't say you've lost your appetite, but you're just not hungry and you realize you need to eat. And it's, you kind of like have to force feed yourself at a certain point, like say, I don't really feel like eating this, but I know I need to eat this and you just go about it and eat it. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually a super important point um, because, I mean, things get boring. Your body's getting fatigued, and one way to do that is just, like, it just wants to sleep, right? Like, yep. in, in food and digesting, I mean, that's extra work, especially when you're just moving all day, every day. And I'll go back to my Cape Epic example. When I've raced it myself and also, like, brought tons of people through it, we're not doing three-hour days. I mean, you're doing six to eight some, some people are out there on course for nine hours. And so, I mean, the, the body's in this like eternal stressed out situation. Right. And so, um, right. But you still need calories in, you still need calories in. And that's where being ahead of the game on planning with the food is super important. And I've been working with, with, um, these two juniors out here in DC and, um, they, they're awesome to work with, but it's, it's a lot of this like pre-planning stuff. And I think that whether you're a junior or a pro or an amateur, it's like when you can control, I mean, Russell said it like, and I've already reiterated several times, but when you can control what you can control, which is a lot of the nutrition, hydration, pre and post you're, you're set up for a lot greater success over time. For sure. Um, man, we're, we're just, we're going deep on that, uh, that, uh, recovery food, but it is truly important. <laughs> um, back, let's go back to my notes to get some good grounding here. Uh, we mentioned, or we talked about your taper for a single day event being like basically five days, reduced a few openers throughout the week. Is it the same for a multi-day approach or is it different? Um, overall pretty similar. Um, I think I typically take maybe an extra two days of tapering if it's a big event. Um, mm -hmm. that I know is going to be pretty fatiguing, um, rec epic, Pikes Peak apex, all things I would do more of a seven day taper for, um, with that said, mm -hmm. still incorporating some intensity into that. Um, whether that's some shorter, like one minute openers or, um, some sprints, um, but yeah, keeping it short, um, but still getting a little bit of intensity in there for sure on the longer day stuff. Cool. And for our listeners, I mean, as Russell's describing like his tapers, I mean, it's, it is go back to the science and, and see traditionally what works across the board. It's reduced volume, keep the frequency, meaning you're, you're probably not changing the number of days that you ride. I mean, you're still riding like almost every day, but you reduce right. overall volume. You keep intensity in there. You keep intensity high, either as high as it was in the, in the previous training block or a little bit higher because you've reduced training load by reducing volume. And just by do, by reducing volume and load, your body is recovering throughout that process. And the intensity is there to stay sharp when you need the performance aspect. Exactly. Yep. Cause I've, I mean, you'll, you kind of realize if you don't 
add that intensity, you get this flat feeling where on race day, you just feel like you can't bury yourself that extra little bit. And I've just found doing that intensity gives you the ability to still go super deep um, once you've been tapering. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. Really important. Um, from the from the travel standpoint, I mean, I know we're talking about you live in the West and you're doing a lot of these, the races that we've mentioned have been um, uh, in, in the West for those examples. I mean, you've traveled the world in race, but from a traveling standpoint for any multi-day event that you've done, is it more complex? Is it less complex? And in, in, in how? Uh, I think the multi-day stuff is definitely a little more complex, um, mm-hmm. especially if you're having to move hotels throughout the week. Um, if you're able to stay in the hotel, the same hotel the entire week, that makes life so much easier. Um, but if you have to move, that kind of changes the game quite a bit. Um, most of most of the stage races these days, I feel like the promoters have done a good job of making it so you can just stay in the same place and um, be centralized, which helps quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I've done a couple events where you kind of have to shuffle hotels. Um, and that, that adds a layer of stress for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, some of those are just like part of the adventure and you just have to go for it. And it's the same for everybody. <laughs> exactly. And you remind yourself of that. It is the same for everybody. And I'd say go back to the things that you can control, which is your food, your sleep, and make sure that you're organized, have a good packing system, um, and that kind of stuff. Because like when you are moving day to day like that, you you don't want yourself splayed out everywhere. Right. Exactly. It just adds more stress and time packing yeah. to your schedule. You don't need that. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um so now this one for the multi-day approach and the race day logistics, um, I'm guessing it's probably like the same for you, meaning you got Valdic out there, you've got your mechanic out there. Um, but is there anything that you do in terms of a race strategy that's different than a single day approach when you're going after uh, a stage race? Yeah. So I think a big difference between single day and multi-day is your strategy. Um, and a lot of that comes down to which aid stations the teams are able to access. Mm-hmm. Um, especially on our team, we have, um, a women's side as well. So it's not possible for our team to get to all the aid stations on these yeah, multi-day cool. events. Mm-hmm. Um, so just kind of strategizing, picking out which aid stations you feel like will benefit you the most and using those ones. Um, yeah, you don't necessarily need to use all the aid stations if they're there. It's nice to know they're there. And if things get real bad, you can always stop and get the neutral support. Um, but it's nice to have the team support where you can just, they hand you the bottle. You don't even have to stop and you go. Um, so yeah, we, mm-hmm. we kind of tweak the strategy a little bit on multi-day stuff and, um, pick which ones we're going to use and which ones we're not. Yeah. And that, that applies too. if you're, if you're flying solo to these races or amateur, um, listening to this podcast, it's like what Russell said still applies. Whereas just because it has five aid stations and say it's a 35 mile day and, medium amount of climbing you don't have to stop at every aid station especially if you're feeling good you got all your stuff and looking at the stage ahead of time and having a a plan that you're gonna do and then be able to change along the way um that's that's like what russell's talking about in terms of the strategy that he implies on it on his race day and i think it's i think it's really important because um i see a lot of people stop and waste too much time at aid stations on these these backcountry things yeah, it's amazing how quick stopping time can add up. I mean, you take two minutes at five aid stations, that's 10 minutes throughout yeah. a whole stage, which that's a lot. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a lot. And so, yeah, if, if you are just going for the overall experience and you want to hang out with aid stations, cool, go for it. No, like no one's saying not to do that. But if you're going for an overall, like you want to get to the finish line, you're challenging yourself and pushing yourself and you want to try to, to optimize your performance on that day just for you. It's like the straight up don't hang out in aid stations. It's a time killer for right. sure. Yep. Um, so, you know, you, you kind of mentioned the VO two workouts being, um, key workouts for you on single day cross country races. Are there, are, you know, a key block of training or a certain workout that you and Jim do leading up for stage racing that you always do or sh- should do or feel good after you get done doing it? Um, yeah, we seem to implement a lot more longer stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to come in the form of the five by twelve minute intervals we were talking about earlier. Yep. yep. Um, and then occasionally we'll incorporate double days um, just to get that extra load in one day. Um, typically, that'll involve me doing some sort of intervals in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll normally use um, this group ride in Denver called the Meridian um, Group Ride. Yep. Um, and it's a good opportunity. I'll do my morning intervals, have a few hours to recover, drive up, and do that. And it's a super hard hour. Um, you get leg speed, there's a short little sprint hill in it. Um, and that's a good way to sort of just empty the tank, um, get everything out. Um, and that, that's a pretty high TSS day. So it kind of uses that as the last real hard push before a couple days of recovery. And I found yeah. just, um, it's amazing how much you can recover in five hour, five or six hours before another workout and just really, um, get as much out of your body in a single day as possible. So. I, I really yeah. like those days. It's super fun. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And for the listeners, if, if the um, internet did cut out there a little bit, he was talking about Meridian group ride, which is kind of like a training race and, um, it's a variable it's up and down. And, uh, so intervals the morning of Meridian, which is super hard, um, that evening. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, to Russell's point, if you do have the time to do doubles and, re- um, your body can recover, it can handle it. Assuming that you've got, um, you know, good sleep rolling into it and all that kind of stuff. And that the doubles, di- the double days drive fitness, man, they drive performance. Just gotta, sure. make sure, just gotta make sure that you do recover on the backside of it. Yeah, definitely. It's, I think double days are one of those things you can overdo it and really mm-hmm. put yourself in a hole. Um, so that's a good, that's when you really need to communicate with your coach well and, um, express how your body's feeling. And, um, at the end of the day, just make sure you don't overdo it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That is it. Well, the last, the last item on our list before we wrap up here is, um, you know, you, you race a bunch, you're professional bike racers. So that makes sense. That's your thing. (laughs) But in the fall, um, you know, you, you, you typically go on a bunch of adventures, you know, and, and I know that you've been ticking off the 14ers in Colorado. You sometimes do, uh, epic, huge days with Kalen. Um, yep. <laughs> and to you, why do you, why do you do those after, after a year of bike racing? Like wh- why do you, why do you do all that? Yeah, I think, um, it's a multitude of reasons. Um, I first fell in love with mountain biking, um, as a kid, um, just exploring in the Hills behind my house. Um, so I think there's always been this side of me that, um, I'm very adventurous and mountain biking is a great tool to see new places. And I just love being in the mountains. So, um, yeah, the fall is kind of my time to unwind and, um, get to do stuff that's not necessarily conducive to being fast on the bike. Um, if I were to mix these adventures in during the race season, I feel like it wouldn't, 
allow me to be the best racer I can be. So it's kind of um, my time to unwind a little bit. I know most people like when they finish the race season, they're ready for like three weeks off the bike and hanging low. But like I get super excited for um, the last race of the season because I know it's adventure season right after that. Um, just try to squeeze in as many 14ers as I can. And um, at the end of the day, I just love riding my bike and I love being outside. So any sort of opportunity to incorporate that, I'm all in on it. <laughs> awesome. Well, do you, I mean, just out of curiosity, any, any specific training that goes into your 14er season, or are you just like, I'm going to go for it and soak up all the doms afterward and deal with it? <laughs> oh yeah. It's total off the couch fitness. <laughs> um, yeah, it, which isn't, it's, I make bad. it work, but yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, it's not good sometimes. <laughs> Um, so like a lot of the 14ers will be 15 miles with, that's kind of the average with 8,000 feet of vert or so. Um, so you feel great going up, you feel good about halfway down. And that's when you realize you're, you're not a hiker, you're not a runner, you're a cyclist and (laughs) you're going to feel that one for a few days. So, um, yeah, that's when I go back to the camper, try to do a river sit and, um, yeah, try to recover as quick as possible. It's, it's a good test to figure out different recovery techniques because um, I get pretty wrecked after some of those 14er adventures yeah. for sure. I'm but, surprised Lehman doesn't have you do some uh, some incline repeats before your first 14er. Well, the problem is I'm just like, as soon as I finish the last race, <laughs> I'm just straight into 14er. So there's no time for incline training. I use the 14ers to get fit for incline season. <laughs> yeah, God's good. Yeah. it's perfect, perfect segment because yeah. the... Okay, so the incline. What what is the incline, Russell? For those who don't know, yeah, the incline. It's um, two thousand feet of vertical gain over the course of just under a mile. Um, it's an old railroad grade, mm-hmm. um, like cable car railroad situation. Yeah, like um, tram car, like like sixty percent type stuff, not two percent railroad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not railroads, but like cable tram yeah. cars. Yep. So it's it's super steep and. I think it's a cool training tool that we're lucky to have in Colorado Springs because, um, as Adam knows, it can be 15 degrees out and you go do the incline and no matter, you could wear shorts and you'd still be hot going up it. So yeah, I don't do much stuff on the trainers. I just use the incline in the winter. Um, sometimes that means you'll get to do it twice, but, um, I found the incline roughly equates to about two hours of decently hard riding. Um, so if mm-hmm. I have a four hour training ride and it's, super snowy out i'm not going to ride the trainer for four hours i'm going to go do the incline twice and um it's it's a ton of fun anyone who's done it knows it's just a cool way to change things up and i do feel like because you're going upstairs it mimics a cycling workout Mm -hmm. um so i do think there is some crossover and i think just for um a lot of other reasons just mentally it's super fun to do um bone structure i think it's good for building bone density because we do a lot of stuff on the bike so i know a lot of roadies um do the incline just just to get that bone density work in a little bit yeah and i brought it up kind of kind of like joking but also to talk about it because i think it (laughs) speaks to not only like you know your methods of training and with with jim um and jim also kind of cultivated that um community at cts uh him and coop really by, you know, it's snowing out, we're doing the incline. We're not doing, we're not doing trainers inside. Let's go guys. And even if it was a longer lunch or whatever, um, it was healthy to get out and do that. And for those to kind of paint that picture, it's like you start at uh, Manitou Springs is like 6,800 and it tops out at what? 8,200 or something like that, or 9,000. 
Um, well, I know it's basically 2,000 feet, so I'd do about 88 or so. Yeah, 88. Okay. Um, yep. And so it just picture this giant staircase. Google it if you want a, a picture of it. And so um, how long does it take you to get to the top, Russell? Um, it varies. <laughs> um, if I'm, if I'm really going for it, I think the fastest I've done it is 22 and change. Um, but on, on average, I'd say I like to just kind of cruise it at like a hard tempo and that's about 28 to 30 minutes. 30. Yeah. I'm more um, like 30, 33 ish. Yeah. The goal is always to keep it under 30. <laughs> All right. Well, but. if I come back, I I'll, I'll let you go, but it is, um, <laughs> but it's, but it, 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 you know, for those of us there in the endurance community, it's like incline season. Okay. And once you're in it, you crack the, the, the candy shell. Cause the first two, three times you do it, you're just super sore. Cause you run down the bar trail after right. you go up, but all cyclists kind of get baited in. Cause you just like smash up and it's just pushing. It's all, you know, concentric muscle action to go up, <laughs> but it's yep. not on the way down. No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it is a wonderful way to kind of transition in. And I think, um, uh, you know, the bigger reason why I bring it up is, you know, with Russell and his kind of balanced training approach, both the physical and the cognitive side of things. I mean, you're, you're, you're listening to somebody who races his bike all year round and is, um, in the mountains all year round. And the first thing that he does when he's not doing that is to go back out and do it. There's just no start line or finish line. <laughs> Right. Pretty much. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, you know, I think it speaks to, you know, what you're truly, you know, you're truly loving what you do. It's, it's fun to see that. Um, it's fun to see you, you know, from kid all the way up to, to now I'm, I'm, I'm super stoked <laughs> that you're still having success in that. And, um, man, I'm, I'm just super, super stoked that you were able to come on the train ride podcast and spend some time with us today. Yeah, definitely. It, um, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun chatting with you and hopefully we'll get in a bike ride this summer. Yeah, let's do it. I'll, I'll, I will be back. I got to come back and visit. Um, well, CTS, we've got our anniversary coming up, which is great. And oh, then, cool. yeah, my brother and his family still live up in Monument. Okay. So um, I'll be back for sure. Uh, well, Russell, before I let you go, I, I, I do want to summarize for our listeners. And we, we covered a lot and we went super long, which is what a true endurance athlete does. <laughs> but if you were to like wrap this all up for our listeners, and if you could just distinguish like, what is the best thing to focus on for a single day event? And what is the best thing to focus on for a multi-day event in terms of training? What would you tell our listeners to focus on for single and then multi? Yeah, I think on single day events, you kind of need to focus on creating peak power and um, just having the absolute highest power you can for um, the demands of the race, whether that's a three hour race or a hour and a half long cross country. And a multi-day event, I think you need to focus on more on being prepared for five days of racing. And you can mm -hmm. achieve that through um, doing harder, longer training blocks. Got it. Perfect. Well, there, there you go, folks. Um, hearing it from the pro, hearing it from somebody who I think has been doing it the best over several years. And um, Russell, thank you again for for coming on the podcast. If if people want to check out your your amazing fall photos, <laughs> where should we send them? Um, I'd say I'm probably the most active on Instagram. Um, you can okay. find me there. My um, handle's just at Fensty. At Finsty and on Instagram. Yep. Cool. Uh, are people going to be able to check you out on Facebook or Twitter or are you just like not hanging out there these days? Um, I, I'm still active on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I recently just started a YouTube channel and um, okay. I think that's where I want to start sharing more of my adventures in a better capacity. I think Instagram's great for photos, but mm -hmm. um, I think YouTube's 
Um, I'm going to start sharing a little more there. So YouTube would be a great place if you want to learn a little more and see a little more than you would see on Instagram. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I'll be sure to get the the YouTube um, channel from you when we wrap up after this. And we'll put that in the show notes for everybody. But at the same time, if uh, if you're listening and you're like, man, I just want to go check out Russell on YouTube, just Google his name, Google Finsty on YouTube. <laughs> you'll you'll cool. find him. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, thanks, Russell. Appreciate you. And uh, good luck this year when we get back to bike racing. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me on again, Adam. Thanks for joining us this week on the Trainwright Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to visit our website at trainwright.com forward slash podcast, where you can find social links, bonus content, and more about CTS. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show and leave us a rating on iTunes. Until next time, train hard, train smart, train right. <laughs>